Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Hey, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by the Low Residency MFA at the University of California, Riverside, Palm Desert. What do Rob Robert, Gemily Rapp, Gina Frangelo, Todd Goldberg, David L. Eulen, and Elizabeth Crane have in common? Well, other than being guests on this program, they're part of the faculty of the hottest MFA in the country, offering degrees in fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and screenwriting. The Low Residency MFA at UCR Palm Desert focuses on students becoming professional writers, actually selling their books and movies and TV shows, not just talking about it. More than an MFA, the Low Residency MFA at UC Riverside is an entry point into a life in the arts. Plus, the two 10-day residencies are held at a resort and spa in Palm Desert, California, which, let's face it, isn't a bad way to attend grad school. For more information, visit palmdesertmfa.ucr.edu or email palmdesertmfa at ucr.edu. This is a graduate school in Palm Desert, California, where you can write a book, write a TV show, write a movie, make some art, go and study there. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. (laughs) This is it. This is other people. This is something that continues to happen. This is getting a little bit out of hand. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California for this, the 400th episode of the Other People podcast. That's right, uh, 400 episodes. I don't even know what to say about that. Uh, Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm sorry 
I apologize. <laughs> I never meant for this to happen. But, uh, you, you know, sometimes in life, you guys, four and a half years go by and you look up and you've made 400 uh, podcasts. Obviously, it takes a village. This never would have happened without the willing participation of a lot of people, namely my guests, the writers who appear on this show, along with a few editors and agents and some screenwriters, uh, all of whom have been kind enough to sit down and spend an hour talking with me. Uh, without them, no show. And of course, it doesn't happen without you guys, my listeners, the people who uh, tune in every week, who support this show, who subscribe to Premium. Uh, you know, as I like to say, you guys are the only thing preventing this from being an incredibly pitiful undertaking. Because let's face it, without uh, listeners, I'm just a middle-aged guy sitting in his garage, either freezing his ass off or trying not to get stung by hornets while pretending to have a radio show. It sounds awful when I say it like that. <laughs> anyway, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, I, can't, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I know it's been a couple of weeks since the last episode. I know that's a little bit unusual. For those of you who did listen to episode 399 and uh, listen to the monologue, you are aware of the fact that my wife Carrie and I, uh, we have had some health issues come up uh, with our son River, who's almost seven months uh, old. And uh, I can't remember what I told you. And I can't remember where we were in the process when I did that monologue. Uh, it's all kind of a blur to me, so I apologize if this is repetitive, but basically uh, where we are right now is uh, we think that he may have had a prenatal stroke. That's what the neurologist thinks, and um, we've got to do some tests. The truth is that we don't know a lot. We've got to do some tests. We've got to go through a process. This stuff takes some time. We know that he's having a motor delay in his left arm. It's not working properly. We have to go in for an MRI uh, tomorrow, which I'm kind of dreading, but we've got to do it because uh, doctors need a picture of his brain and his spine so they can figure out what's going on. And uh, we've already got him started on physical therapy. He's a trooper. He's a very happy baby. And uh, yeah, that's where things are. So uh, I, I want to thank everybody for the kind words. I got a lot of nice emails and tweets and so on. Really appreciate that. Uh, second, uh, my apologies. If I don't know, I don't even know if I should apologize. I'm kind of debating uh, this internally, but if it seemed too maudlin for me to bring this up in episode 399, I know uh, my wife and I have been through all sorts of craziness trying to have a second child, and I've talked about that, and now we've had one, and now there's more difficulty, and uh, I just don't want to uh, make things unbearable by sharing all of this. But uh, at the same time, uh, you know, I do the monologue, I tell you what's going on in my life, and this is obviously central. And when something like this happens, it's hard to sit down in front of a microphone and not uh, talk about it. It feels artificial somehow. So I don't want to dwell, and I won't dwell, but I am going to keep you updated uh, in bits and pieces as things progress. And, uh, you know, aside from that, and, you know, again, I don't want it to be maudlin. I want to play, maybe I should, play, <laughs> I should play sad music. Let me play some sad music. Uh, I, this is the last thing I'll say about this stuff today. Uh, I have been thinking of Curtis Mayfield, the musician, Superfly, one of my favorite musicians and uh, a guy who had uh, a lot of wisdom and became a paraplegic uh, due to a tragic accident later in his life. 
and I'm going to be paraphrasing horribly. I don't remember where I read this or exactly what was said or how it exactly materialized, but I do remember that someone either asked Curtis Mayfield or he asked himself, why me or why you? You know, do you ever ask yourself, why me? Why did this horrible accident have to happen to me? And Curtis Mayfield's response uh, was, well, why not me? So it can be very easy when something bad happens in life or something, you know, uh, happens health-wise with a loved one to, you know, fall into uh, despair or to start spiraling and asking, well, why, why me? Why us? Well, you know what? We're people. We're human beings on earth. This stuff happens. Why not us? It's going to happen to all of us eventually in some form. Nobody gets out clean. Why me? Why not me? And then beyond that, it's really not about me. It's not happening to me specifically. It's happening to my son. So as I'm sitting there saying to myself, why me? Uh, I can sort of be, uh, I can sort of uh, lose sight of what's actually happening. It's happening to him. And my job isn't uh, to get self-focused. It's to take care of him and to help him out as much as I can and to make sure that he gets the best care that he possibly can get and that he can heal. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So anyway... Uh, episode 400. Very excited about it. Can't believe that there are now 400 of these things out there in the internet somewhere festering. And uh, I just couldn't be more pleased to have Alexander Chi as my guest for this episode. His new novel is called The Queen of the Night. It's available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It is uh, already, I think, in its fifth printing. It's a great success story in publishing. And uh, you might have seen Alex the other night on Late Night with Seth Meyers. Did you see that? He was there, and now he's here. <laughs> uh, the Queen of the Night is also the official February pick for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The Nervous Breakdown, for those of you not aware, is my official, uh, or my official, it's my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own uh, book club, which you can sign up for. For more information, go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on book club in the menu bar. I recommend that. So, uh, again, very excited to have Alexander Chi here as my 400th guest. I've known him uh, mostly from a distance in the way that writers often know one another in the modern uh, age. Uh, but we have met before. He was an editor for a spell in the fiction section of The Nervous Breakdown. And uh, I know that he has been working on The Queen of the Night for many years. And it makes it uh, kind of doubly exciting to, to when you know somebody and you know how hard they've been working and how long they've been working on a project to see that project come to fruition and to see it have success. So uh, without any further ado, here is episode 400, my conversation with Alexander Chi and his new novel one more time is called The Queen of the Night. So this is a book that 15 years in the making? Well, I mean, 15 years since it probably 
15 years since my last book. I spent a couple of years not writing it. Okay. Not writing... I, I was writing other things. And... Like and then, jur- journalism or... No, I was I was working on two other books that I was sure were the next books. Ah, okay. And, and then I sent a a piece of it off to uh, this special issue of the Hartford Current that was edited by a guy named Dave Daly, who's now at Salon. Oh, right. Yeah. And you know, at the time, he was an up and coming editor, and he was doing a fiction issue of the Hartford Current, a supplement, and. He said, do you have anything in a drawer? You know, like 1,500 words. And I thought about it and I thought, oh, I got stuff in drawers. <laughs> I've got so much stuff in drawers. <laughs> yeah, so I so I went in and took a look. And, you know, I had, I had had this idea for the novel back in 1999. And then I put it aside in probably 2002, 2001. I was angry at it because I thought of it as a spoiler. You know, I had I had Edinburgh, my first novel, on submission, and publishers were asking what the second novel would be, so I had supplied a two-paragraph synopsis for something that I had been kind of thinking about whimsically called The Queen of the Night, and that... You had the title that early. Oh, yeah. I had the title right away. Okay. And actually, I, I usually do. Um, I, I don't know why it's a strange thing. It's a, it's, it's a focusing tool. Um, but I think that's, I mean, some writers get that it's, it starts with the title or it starts with the character's name or something, you know, yeah, something, something to grab like onto. And I also, I often get a scene that's right near the end, but that is not the end. I can say that now having finished two novels. <laughs> is that good to get one that's near the end, but that's not the end? I guess it's better than having nothing. I... I guess I don't, I mean, I don't know if it's good or not. It's just kind of how my brain works. It's a sort of place that I shoot for, I guess. And then, and then I, and then I know the rest. Well, no, but I think it's like, I'm I'm always amazed when I hear writers say that, you know, I I just had a kernel. I had a character. I just started like, you know, day by day making it up as I went along without having any concept of where the end was. That always amazes me because I think you have to have at least some like loose idea of what the target is that you're headed towards, but not everybody, you know, not everybody needs that. Correct. I think that is exactly, you know, but I think so much of being a writer is trying to figure out, you know, what kind of a writer are you? Like, what's your best time of day to work? Do you need to plan out in advance or do you need to be spontaneous? Do you need uh, coffee in the morning or... This coffee destroy you and turn you into an, an internet addict. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. What, so. <laughs> what kind of writer are you? I am. It's funny. If I can, I like to get up at 5 a.m. Oh, wow. And work. That's my favorite. It's sort of, it's almost like a sneak attack on the day or something. It's, it's like some childish idea of escape it's kind of a holy time if that's the right adjective i mean it's great but like pre-dawn the quiet yeah i think there's you know when i was a kid i loved i loved it when no one knew where i was that was my favorite thing and that was a terrifying time for my mom (laughs) i was gonna say that's my favorite thing now my children are terrified and uh and i think 
That's kind of what it feels. It's that sort of that same feeling that I used to get as a kid. I have a little bit of that first song of excitement, that feeling that everyone else is asleep and they're just not, they don't need anything from me, you know? Yeah. So is that how most of this book was written? A lot of it was written actually obsessionally. I think, you know, one of the things that I had to learn with writing this book was how to just work like a normal person. I kept wanting to be done before I was done. Mm. And so it's, there's a line in a new essay that I have out now called how to write an autobiographical novel. And the line is something like the boy who, the man who cried novel. Um, it's sort of based on that time. Yeah. Well, no, I totally get that. That what is that? It's like this, this, uh, nervous energy or this, I just want it out of me. I want it done. I want to hold it. I want it. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I want it externalized and you can sort of feel yourself rushing. Is that what you were talking about? Well, I think it's also partly that I just was, there was, there was so much that I was doing. I think even, even now I think I'm just beginning to be aware of just exactly what is in the book in a strange way. Mm. Like, which is to say, now that I'm seeing all people's reactions to it, and tell me what my book's about. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I mean, it's it's sort of a it's a strange thing, you know. You're creating a country you'll never visit when you write a novel or when you write a book because you'll never have the experience of it that other people will. And so, it's it's a once you're done with it. You, you don't even know how to think about what's in there because you, you've known it so well in some ways. You've known it so well that you don't know it at all anymore, which sounds like that old cliche, but I think it's really true. And you said earlier that you were angry at this book. And like, I, I right. don't know if so I... So the reason why is that all the publishers thought that, that The Queen of the Night was going to be so successful that I should write that first. And I suppose... <laughs> the novel's current success is uh, is their revenge on me. Because uh, at the time I thought, how do you know this book is going to be any good? You don't know. I haven't written it. And I just, I thought of it as a, I thought of it as a fool's game. I, I read something recently by this poor guy who, he just published his first novel. He's been writing for years and he's had novels rejected for years. And, and, then, and then he got leukemia. Ugh. Um, it's, this was a piece on Salon and and he just had his first novel accepted for publication it's coming out and but he almost died trying to do it and I like that was what I did not want I did not want to be that guy so I fought really hard to try to publish the one that I had already written and you know I don't think that there were necessarily any mistakes in that so wait you had you published Edinburgh yeah and then you had a second book already written no, no, no. That's the whole point. Really, was that this other book that they were so excited about was not written? I uh. just had like, I had a two paragraph synopsis. I had maybe fifteen pages, thirty pages of it. You know, I don't even really remember. When I went for it in the drawer, there were only a few sections that I could have reasonably sent off to Dave Daly at the time, and and the one that I sent is the section now. That's now it's sort of near. It's near the the end of the first quarter of the book, I'd say. It's the scene where she buries her mother and then 
and then leaves the farm after her family dies. So. Okay. So you finally settle down. You finally come to terms at some point that this is the book you're going to sit down to write. And <laughs> well, so the Dave published that. And yeah. when I, and when I sent it off to him, I, I remember I was suddenly so anxious that it be liked, that he liked it after all that resentment of it as an idea for so long, that kind of surprised me. And I thought, Oh, you actually really care about this idea. Like I paid attention to that feeling. And then I sent it off to my agent. I hadn't sort of told her about this, <laughs> this little episode. And, uh, you know, I knew that that was a mistake that I should alert her that I had done this. So she said, you know, send it to me. So I sent it to her and, and she called me up. She didn't even write back by email. She just called me up on the phone and said, talk to me about this. So that's a good sign. Yeah, right? it is. I suppose. I mean, it's, you, you want to think that you're aloof to that kind of excitement and et cetera, but I think, you know, you're not. And oh. she liked the other ideas, but this was the one that, and she's, and she has stayed, you know, that excitement has stayed for all the years. Like she's been, and who's your agent? Jinnah. Okay. Uh, at, at Wiley, she she doesn't really like having an internet presence, so I won't say too much more about right, that. Right, right. <laughs> People and don't I, don't start emailing her out of the blue. And well, and also don't email me asking to get right uh, uh, introduced. So okay, so uh, a fifteen year span of time with a couple years off in between, getting up at five a.m. Uh, most of the time. Well, did, did you ever um, have did you ever have uh, periods where you were ready to scrap it or you thought this oh is sure yeah. yeah many i mean i think i was i was often prepared to throw the whole thing away and in fact i kept throwing it away during the first years of writing it but throwing it away in the sense that i would so i like i wrote 90 pages and then i thought eh, that's not really it and then i wrote another 90 pages and again thought this is wrong and then i wrote 75 pages and then I looked and I had I was keeping this file that I called like the chop bag where like things that I had chopped out of the manuscript I would put in this file yeah yeah and so the the section that I thought of as the novel that file was 75 pages and the chop bag was like 335 pages I thought you were going to say like 6,400 <laughs> <laughs> but it was I was like oh so you have like a whole novel in there that you've kind of thrown away so i pulled it out and began looking at it and then i realized that there was some weird way in which i had needed to write each of these different sections as if the others didn't exist it was very strange um, but i i just i understood that the the idea was across those identities as it were it's yeah. you know writing it makes me think of you know writing a novel how often is it ever a clean process you know someone sits down starts writing the beginning finishes at the end it's uh it's i hear this over and over again people amassing these huge files thinking it's you know nothing trashing it picking it back up breaking it apart reassembling it starting over from scratch you know what i'm saying the, it, right. that's the way that it goes that's yeah, the, that's the work that's how it works i mean i think there's something Edinburgh was a little bit the same in the sense that what happened with Edinburgh, my first novel, was that I 
I was moving. I was leaving Iowa after graduating, and I found all of these different fragments. And I thought I had a kind of a just a little prickle at the back of my head where I was like, "There's some sort of weird thread that connects them." So I jokingly put them all in a binder, and I said, "When we get to New York, tell me what you are." And and then when I opened it up in New York after you know unpacking my stuff, I could see the connection in between all of those pieces. And I guess there was some way that that fragmentation also worked with with this just in a different sort of process well you know? yeah it's, i mean you talk about having to be patient you talk about um being anxious to have a book done getting frustrated with a book all these different things uh, it sometimes time is just a, a super key ingredient you have to be willing to sit through all that time and to let whatever is happening narratively in the book uh get worked on by your subconscious like it's sort of mysterious but like one day you can be looking at those pages have no idea what the thread is and then you move to new york you open it up after some time away and suddenly it's all there like what is that i'm remembering something i used to say uh in like 2008 where i'd say sometimes it's a ballet sometimes it's a clog dance (laughs) you you open you're like oh my god it's beautiful and then you open it again you're like what the i misspelled yeah yeah, i misspelled my own name like um, yeah it's I, you know, part of it is I mean, nothing against cloggers, by the way. <laughs> They're comfortable shoes. <laughs> Utilitarian. Um, I, I guess the, you know, the, so patience is part of it. I didn't, I mean, I wasn't always getting up at 5 a.m. Sometimes I was staying up really late. And so, sometimes it was, I, I needed to regularize my process, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And that eventually did happen. And now I'm more uh, aware of how that works for me, you know. So, you know, I, the new novel I'm working on, uh, I started, I went back to notebooks and just uh, the commitment to write uh, for an hour and a half to, an, to two hours each day, mm-hmm. no matter what, but to just... Always pick the same time, write by hand, write in pen, and then when the time was up to stop and go and do the other things. Because I, you know, I have a lot of projects that I'm also doing in addition to writing like most <laughs> most Americans. It's about mul- multiple revenue streams, sure. as they call it, which i.e. all of my gigs. And so I can't just, I can't, uh, until I sell a new book, I can't just, you know, work on it all day and night. Like I, like I did for a while because I think there was a, there was a lot of guilt that I felt once I was late. I just felt constantly guilty about being late. How late were you? <laughs> the original. <laughs> Sorry, the original contract said that the the manuscript was due two thousand and six. So what a eight years, I, what a, ten years, just a no decade. biggie. <laughs> yeah, right. What's a decade in the grand scheme of things? So. But you know, I'll, I'll I'll say this, and you can agree or disagree. I okay. think you'll probably agree. It's better to get it right or to do the very best you can possibly do than to rush something out into the world to meet some arbitrary deadline, right? I think that's true. I think you know, I I, I say this to my students a lot. The only thing that protects you is that you did your best and that you did it the way that you wanted to, um, because. If you if you don't and you fail, then it's 
it's like two times the failure. Right. You know, but if you, if you at least did it the way you wanted it to, the way that you, you felt was that honoring that initial spirit or what have you, then, then if it fails, at least you can own that failure and you're like, okay, I, and you I did, screwed up. And you did every draft. Yeah. You, you, you know, every sentence you worked, every word right. you looked at, you know, you, you didn't skip any steps because I think if you have to look back on a book and feel like you rushed it or that you didn't do your due diligence, that's maybe more painful than even the book, you know, not finding as many readers as you wished it would or not getting the review coverage or whatever, you know, it's like that feeling I think is, is worse to have. Yeah. Because it's on you. But you it really is, yeah. But you didn't have that. You spent the time. You got the book done. Are you? I mean, I'm assuming you're satisfied with what's out there now. <laughs> yes, I found a few things that I'm going to fix, but they're very tiny, just like tiny things. Well, and with so, with a, a, a historical fiction, I would imagine that little tiny details are more likely to need fixing because. There's so much research involved. There's deep period detail that you have to get right. It seems like there's more right. opportunity for those kinds of uh, mistakes to crop up. Well, sure. I think I should I should say because of the stakes, I did have the manuscript vetted by uh, two opera singers and, and two historians who specialize in the period so that I could remove as many of the anachronisms and mistakes as possible. Smart. And... The are these people a, are these people that you knew or are these people you had to go find? Do you just have like two opera singers and two historians of the period in your in your <laughs> arsenal of friends? I I guess you could say I cultivated them. Okay. I think you know the but the thing that I I probably uh, the thing that has surprised me with some of the reviews is. I always imagined being chastised for not doing enough research. I never imagined being sort of, I wouldn't call it chastised exactly, but there's a kind of, a kind of shadiness around having done all the research. Like, Oh, look how well researched this is. And I'm just like, <laughs> Oh my God. You were, so you were just always going to complain about something, right? You know, he um, did his homework, right? So there's actually, there was one reviewer who managed to catch two things. One, I would, one I would challenge as the mistake of the source material, not my mistake. So he's, he said, well, you know, he gets a ballet position wrong. And it, it's true that I did not have a ballerina read the novel. So that, well, you, well, you didn't ask me, Alex. <laughs> right. so. um, and the, and then the second one, second was, he was sort of, he was making fun of, uh, the idea that the Sen might be a place that people went because it smelled so badly, but I just thought like like a lot of Paris smelled badly. That was kind of yeah. one of the things that like it it all smelled so badly that like why would you remark on it? You would never you you were just used to it. Yeah, you know that's Mon so, like Montmartre back in those days was just like farmland, wasn't it? It was just like filthy. If I had remarked on the smell, some reviewer would probably say something in the effect of like, no one really thought anything of the smell. So there's really, it's just a, in some ways you just have to endure all these little arrows, these little arrows. Yes. But you know, but on the whole, the book has been, uh, well reviewed, wide reviewed in great places. You got a yes. great New Yorker review. You've been on Seth Meyers. 
yeah. um, which I have, I've said on Twitter, but I want to say on this show, like kudos to him for having uh, literary uh, authors on his show. It's I've just, been seeing that happen. His devotion to it is is fantastic, and I the you know the whole team there is really into it. And what I love about it also is that they are really into fiction. They're they're not as yet scheduling nonfiction guests. Hmm. They are really committed to serious literary fiction, and I applaud that. There's something incredible about that. Well, I want to ask you a little bit more about this experience because it's an experience that I think. Uh, most authors have not had going on national television on a talk show. It might be something that to some uh, would seem unnerving. You know, you're showing up, you're going to be on camera. <laughs> what was it like? For, first of all, how did it happen? The the producers, the Seth Meyers team loved my book. How did so they get it? Your publicist submitted it, or I my my sense of it is that my publicist submitted it. Okay. That I was pitched to them, but I think the the kind of uh, the the process has a a certain amount of cloak around it that they prefer. Sure, you know, you get the call right. They didn't tell me how they chose me. In other words, right. So, and you didn't. Ask. They just right. They just <laughs> they just issued the invitation. But that's fantastic. And yes. So you get um, obviously you're excited. This is good for you. Good for your book. Mm-hmm. You show up, green room. Were you were you nervous or is this something you felt comfortable doing? I had received media training. Oh, so for this? No, for for sort of everything, so that I wouldn't you know come out on the road and and just flail or hum a lot or you know all those kinds of things so it's a or say um a lot (laughs) so it's uh it's a thing that it's a thing that still exists there was a great compliment to get it because it, it says we believe that people will want to talk to you you know and the 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 guy that houghton set me up with uh, is he's an old champ at it. What did he teach? He taught me everything from it was a, it was essentially a two and a half hour interview where he just kept asking me questions of all of the different kinds. So there's the open question, the sort of more precise question. The you know he just he asked me all these different kinds of questions, and then he underlined all of my best stories, which is a thing that I think I noticed that also the, the Seth Meyers team did also. So there was like a, a pre, a pre-show phone call where I spoke to one of the producers and, and then when I showed up, that producer ran through, you know, what they felt were the, the highlights. And then, so then you go on the air a little prepared in that sense. It's still pretty spontaneous, but They've said to you, you know, we think these are the most interesting stories that we're going to be focused on when you get out there. So just to just so you know. Well, yeah, yeah like you're not completely blindsided. No, and I, I think you know that's. I believe this is fairly standard for. I mean, not that I've been on so many TV shows, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. I think. <laughs> uh, I think the. The the green room is. It's a relaxed atmosphere. You know, I 
had my mom and stepdad there and I was able to have a little bit of bourbon. Some cocaine. Relax. It was good. <laughs> As one does. Coffee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, coffee. Yes. And uh, I had a brief visit to the makeup room for some very light adjustments. And then, you know, and they ask you, do you need anything steamed? Do you, you know, they're very, they're just, it's show business. It's show business. They want it to go right. Yeah. So, it, and they were incredibly thorough. And I, I felt, I felt very relaxed in many ways by the preparations because I just thought, okay, I, I know everything that I should know. Cause I think they are also probably, aware that for a civilian like myself who has been essentially not on TV for the whole time that I was working on the novel, that that moment could be potentially a little intense because writers are not, they're not used to that kind of attention. But I think, you know, what's great about the show is that maybe, maybe we will be because if, as long as they keep doing it, then more and more of us will be going on there. And then, and then I think over time it won't seem so crazy that you got picked. It will feel a little less like a lottery. Yeah. I mean, because right, right now to get on TV, it's like, Oh my God, a writer. It's sort of <laughs> sad that it's such a big deal. You know, <laughs> it's like Haley's <laughs> comet. This little, this little, but you know, that's, I suppose that's, that's America. But what's great about it is that this is America too. This is like a good thing that's happening in America is that this show is, is taking this kind of, stance with with fiction so it's so it's not just oprah alone anymore in that in the oprah field well and now she has some company she has well and it's a reversion because yeah. the truth is that back in the 60s and 70s on the tonight show norman mail you know there was all the, the sure ben and surf yeah. made a uh quite a, a a good business for random house uh bringing books on television yeah so well, well hopefully there's going to be more of it so let's talk about you Sure. Uh, where are you from originally? I am. I was born in Rhode Island. My dad was a oceanography student at URI, and my mom was a home ec teacher at the time. What does an oceanographer do? Study of the just like deep sea. Study of ocean life and and currents, and I, I believe. I mean, I'm. I realized that I actually never really asked him about it. I just sort of knew that he was out. <laughs> on the ocean a lot. <laughs> Isn't it um, strange how... I mean, I feel the same way about my dad. Like, yeah. I don't really know what the fuck he did. I mean, I know what his job was, but it was like, never really got into the nitty gritty of it. As a kid, you're so you're so tuned to them coming home that you almost don't even want to know about what they do when they're not with you because it's, it's like a, a jealousy thing. Like, I don't want to know about that thing you do, you know? Right. And then, you know, later you want to know. My dad, well, he was on the Tech Tide 2 underwater living experiment, so he was basically like a... What, what is that? That's where a team of people lived underwater and did experiments in this underwater home. Oh, okay. Kind of like the invert, like the, the opposite of the space station, essentially. Like a, Well, sort of. I mean, but they, these were... Uh, these these environments actually were models for... Like they helped get get us into space. Oh, really? Okay. So a lot, there was a lot of... There's a certain amount of competition between the the oceanauts and the astronauts as the back then, and the the sense that NASA was just taking everything that 
all the tech that they were coming together with and using it to go into space and getting all the glory. So I mean, the, the space is a little bit sexier than the ocean, though, in terms of like what we've explored, we've explored a fraction of what's beneath the sea. I mean, there's so much that we have no idea. Yeah, about. I think that's the that's really the thing is that space seems sexy, but it's time for the ocean to be sexy. We need to really make the ocean care. sexy. Make the ocean sexy. <laughs> yeah, we I think we treat the ocean a lot like our moms. We just think that they'll always it'll always be there, and we don't have to do anything for it, and we can leave our stuff there, and she'll take care of it, and you know that's that's really bad. It's like I'm not not a good way plus the ocean is here like i don't i think space exploration's very interesting i think astronomy and knowing like these gravitational waves that einstein's theory just being proven last week that should be more thrilling to me than it probably is just because of my minimal understanding but i get a little frustrated by like uh this thought of like colonizing mars like have you looked at mars like i know i talk <laughs> i've talked to an author on this show who wants to be one of the early colonizers so i know people have different opinions about this but to me it's just it looks like a hellscape. If it were another earth and it were some Edenic paradise with fresh water and lush vegetation, I might be more keen on visiting, but I don't want to go like live in a place where I got to wear like a compression suit and it's like 70,000 degrees below zero and there's no veg, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by Elon Musk's idea of colonizing Mars and his reasons for it. You know, the idea that Earth should be more than a one planet, or sorry, that the idea that humanity should be more than a, a one planet proposition that will last longer if if we colonize other planets. That's an, that's an interesting idea. Um, I, I think part of what is probably going to be difficult is that he wants... From what I've read in interviews, he wants, uh, he's looking for people who will sell it and basically be willing to do a lot to sacrifice to be there, but also who can afford to pay to go. Right. And that I think is, you know, America's rich right now are not the, the settler kind. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you think it's bad to be on like a commercial flight? Wait till you're on that flight to Mars. You think your fellow passengers are annoying now. Right. That's going to be an ugly trip. Martian Whole Foods is going to be a fucking nightmare. <laughs> we know it. Um, okay. So Rhode Island childhood. Yes. So, it sounds like your Sorry. dad, it sounds like your dad is a really smart guy. He was, it wasn't even his first, uh, advanced degree. He had, he had been an engineer on the Saturn V rocket engine, had gone to Pomona, gotten an offer for a job at a little company called Texas Instruments that he turned down huh. uh, in order to go off to, to to do oceanography. And he he was doing that as a part of and eventually entering the family business. His dad's business uh, was a fisheries business. And he was doing things later on that I suppose was an outgrowth of that research where he, he designed a commercial squid trap, for example, or also what was there? There was some, I'll think of it in a little bit. There was, a, there was another kind of thing like that. He, he was always kind of doing these incredible science nerd things that I, that I loved 
like he had a he had a he and a, another friend of his they were trying to prove that you could eat all these things in the ocean that you that a lot of people didn't think you could eat so he and they went to a bar and they had like a they had a food chain eat off where they ate their way up the the ocean food chain <laughs> <laughs> to prove it and so he he was he was very smart very adventurous uh, taught taekwondo to put himself through engineering school so he's like a black belt or yeah he was he was a he was a black belt he actually in connecticut he had to register as a deadly weapon my god under the laws of the time he's building squid traps <laughs> he can kill you with his bare hands who is this man is he still with us no he oh. he died in unfortunately he died in the 80s oh he did yes what happened so, uh car accident oh yeah really horrible i'm sorry thank you and how old were you i was 16 when he died oh so it was it was a pretty traumatic episode of my life yeah did you think that it uh factored into you becoming a writer like did, were you writing at that point in your life or was it something that like you started doing as a coping mechanism or something in the aftermath well i, I mean my first story that i wrote was a way of working through some of the grief. So there is that. But I think people were always telling me that I should be a writer. That was one of these things. It wasn't, I was never the guy that, that people were telling not to write. That's not my story. My story was that people were telling me, you should be a writer. And I was going, yeah, okay. You know, like, yeah. just because when you, I think when you have a talent, you don't think much of it because you didn't, you didn't do anything. It's something that arrives, you know. So you you take it for granted. You think that it's not a big deal, or you try to downplay it because maybe it makes you uncomfortable for people to focus on it. I think, you know, the I had a very funny moment happen where <laughs> I was waiting on Doctor Ruth Westheimer, and in high school, no, like oh. this is years later. So I'm I'm like. It's after my MFA. I'm a waiter in a steakhouse working on my first novel. It's a lunch shift. It's a busy lunch shift at this steakhouse in Midtown, Morton's of Chicago, that chain. Sure. So I'm in a you know white shirt, black bow tie, black pants, black shoes, black apron, running around. And she's seated at my station table for one, Dr. Ruth. And by, for those listening who uh, don't know who she is, she's the famous sex therapist. Correct. So I, so I, I'm sailing by her table and her steak has been served. She's, you know, cutting into her filet or whatever it was. And, and she pauses and she says to me, sort of puts her finger out and I, I stop and she says, you're not a waiter, are you? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, excuse me, I, I said, is there, is there something wrong with the lunch, with your service or, and she said, no, I mean, it's not like, it's not what you're here for right you're you're a writer aren't you and it was such an uncanny moment because i thought i tried to think like did i give some sort of super literary menu presentation <laughs> or you know like, i really could not figure out for the life of me why why this had happened it, it was one of those moments like in a bad movie about being a writer where you have a moment with like the magical old lady dr who, ruth saw yeah. through you she sees into my soul 
but it was also you know at the time because you know waiting tables is a shitty existence or it can be at times uh, at the time it also kind of was this beautiful moment where i thought oh i'm i hide less than i think or something or just like i gotta do this like i'm on the right track and... yeah she was just really clairvoyant wow I that's think, a great story thank you yeah it's uh but you know the moments like that are are also part of what i was trying to write about in the queen of the night that feeling of of something arriving in your life that seems to ha- point a finger in a particular direction and then you have the choice or so you think you know, do i go in that direction do i not and and it's why it's why the the plot is made in a sense out of a chain of coincidences because you know there i i i'm thinking of a few you know i've had some great reviews i've had some people quibble about the coincidence thing and i think that that is actually the topic <laughs> like uh, that was you know the whole point was what if you took opera plots literally you know cuz we th- we see them we think oh that's so crazy and and yet the idea of the... I've got to confess, I've never seen an opera. You've never seen an opera? Yeah. Okay. So they're, the, they're typically incredibly high-stakes dramas. Sure. You know, uh, someone is not just someone that you fall in love with, but they may be secretly your sister, or they may be the sister of the man who kills your mother or there's always this kind of incredibly hyper compressed sense of, of the stakes. And the idea is that they're playing out lessons that the gods want us to learn from because of how, how bad they are. And so when was the first time you saw an opera? Oh, I, I mean, my dad, and my mom loved opera. I thought you were going to say, my dad sang opera. But my dad also did, he would sing opera around the house. He was one of those guys. Really? Yeah. There's, I met actually, I met someone who, his dad also did the same thing. We kind of had this sang bond, well? bonding moment. My dad sang pretty well. Yeah. Can I you sing? I can sing. It's true. You, you have the mic. Oh, not, not <laughs> opera. No. Oh. <laughs> no. I have not trained like that. But, so, I, so I remember him singing a lot of, this around the house when I was growing up as a kid, he would sing it while he mowed the lawn or, you know, it was kind of funny. Sometimes we would act like the noise hurt us, but you know, it's one of my better memories of him. And, and then when I was in a professional boys choir as a kid, I sang in Carmen and Tosca and the choruses for both. I guess I was probably 12, 13 years old when we did Carmen and maybe 14 when we did Tosca and I loved them I absolutely loved them I thought it was amazing just the the way in which the drama was so consuming well and I'll say too you know having not seen uh, an opera performed live I have uh, seen an opera singer perform live and I'm, I'm remembering it now because I was at a poetry reading and it was in one of these funky like loft art spaces in Los Angeles. And uh, they were like, and now uh, so-and-so, and I, I forget her name, but they were like, she's going to sing 
you know, sing for you guys. I had no idea. I was sitting on the floor near the front. She started singing. I cried. Yeah. Like, like tears came to my <laughs> eyes. Cause it was like, it, it's a really powerful yeah. uh, sound. Uh, like it's, I just remember, I couldn't believe how much sound she was making mm. from her body. And, uh, yeah. when you're right there and it's right there in your face, like I didn't know how to respond. You know, it's not that I was weeping, but just like a tear rolled. You know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's really extraordinary, and that that was also part of the obsession then, and part of the obsession that turned into the novel was trying to trying to write about that the way in which opera can make you cry even when you're not expecting it at all, or, or you maybe, don't know what they're saying, or you <laughs> may not even know what they're saying. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Did you thank Dr. Ruth in the acknowledgments, <laughs> or is this your moment to thank Dr. Ruth? I. You know, I should send her a copy of the novel. You should. That's is she should. still with us? She is. She's yeah. got to be 100 she years old. She's still with us. And actually, she might really enjoy the book. Yeah. So oh. I should send her a copy. That's um, a great idea. Yeah, why not, right? And uh, I mean, especially... From your waiter. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Alex, yeah. thank you for pulling me aside all those years ago. So it's a great story. <laughs> um, so, okay, so you leave home to go to school. Yes. And where did you go? Well, so I should say, you know, we traveled around a bit when I was a kid. We went to, we lived in uh, in Guam, Kauai, and Truk, and then we moved back to Maine. When I say back to Maine, I should say my mom's family has been from Maine for hundreds of years. Okay. And so my my father and my mother decided that the Portland, greater Portland area would be a good place to raise their kids, so... Off we went. And starting at age six, I grew up in Maine. And when I left school, for school at the age of 18, we had stayed there for the majority of my childhood. It's a great and town, I, Portland, a, Maine. It is. I, I actually just finished a, an essay about going off to college. It was Wesleyan University is where I went to. And pretty much right away, people <laughs> didn't believe that I was from Maine. And they'd say things like, so did you go to Bronx Science or Stuyvesant? And I would say, I went to Cape Elizabeth High School. And they'd say, where is that? And I would say, it's it's in Cape Elizabeth. Maybe. Wait, so they thought you were from New York? They did. And then they would say, no, no, really, like, Bronx Science, you're not from Maine. That's, like, which one are you from? What was it about you? Uh, I think people did not expect someone who was mixed race to be from Maine. I also, my father had been a linguist as well, among the other things. I know. I, Dear God. <laughs> It's a lot to live up to. Yeah. So he, so he spoke English with a really flat accent. He had, he had consciously trained an accent out of his English because he knew that it would be held against him. So he didn't want that. And so the only accent I heard growing up was my mom's accent, which my mom has a pretty strong main accent, but I would say... It, there was some way in which it, I, it somehow didn't transmit. So no, I get that. My parents have an accent, and I, I didn't get it. You, you know? imitate your parents as a way to be close to them. Right. That's like a. It's a thing you do. So, I. <laughs> for better or worse, and I, I think the. You know, so there was so there was no the, the no accent thing, I. 
they also they would say things like people don't dance like that in Maine. They, I think they they thought of me as a kind of an urban sophisticate, and they thought of people in Maine as a sort of, you know, hillbillies. Sure. Yeah, hilltown people, and and so that was kind of offensive, but basically fine. It was strange though because growing up in Maine, people had always actually assumed that I was not from there. So I I kept feeling like I was constantly fighting to belong to belong to this place that I actually had really old roots in. You know, you know my mom. And what is the your father's Korean? My father is a Korean immigrant. My mother's family built the first church in the state when it was the Massachusetts Territory, and we have the King George III deed. Six ancestors fought in the Revolution. I joined a an association recently that you can only join if an ancestor owned a tavern before the revolutionary war. So, so one of your ancestors owned a tavern before the revolutionary war. Yeah. Like something like 1670. Okay. Yeah. It's not still there. That can't be. No. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I wish. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) That would be really cool. Oh, that's old roots. Yeah. So, you know, when people would say to me, go back to where you came from, my reaction was you for you first. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You're like, my ancestors exactly. fought in the revolution. Yeah. Yours only fought in Vietnam. Give me a break. Yeah. Um, so Wesleyan. So Wesleyan. Wesleyan you, was great. I loved it. I still love it. It's a... Writing at Wesleyan. You were writing, majored in. Did you know that you were going to do this or did you... I uh, did not. I went to Wesleyan believing that I was going to major in art okay. and, be, and draw. In particular, I love drawing also, and yet I I did fall asleep in a drawing class and get kicked out of the major. They kick you out for that at Wesleyan? <laughs> well, the teacher was really severe, and she had praised all of my work until then, and then after that, nothing I did was right, and she, I think she just couldn't forgive me for doing it. So, my final grade in the course was a B minus, and then that complete that prevented me from. Continuing into the major, man, yeah, that's harsh. It was. It was a. It was my come to Jesus moment, or whatever they call that. So it's one of those fingers pointing that you were talking about. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I I spent that summer in a kind of funk, and then a friend called up and asked if he could borrow my typewriter, which I guess dates it pretty easily, and. I said, sure. What are you, a what typewriter. Are you typing? For those of you listening, a typewriter is a machine <laughs> that people used to type with back in the 1980s, <laughs> 90s. <laughs> yes. So he he said, oh, I'm applying to Phyllis Rose's fiction class, and I need to type up a story. And I, I said, sure, come over, you know, no problem. And then I realized as soon as I hung up that I wanted to do it. This is a little bit of a thing with me where I don't, I don't know how I feel right away. And then I need to figure it out through these things that provide clear signals. So, and I should also, it sounds also like you have a little bit of your father's, uh, polymath tendencies, you know, you can sing, you can draw, you write. Is there anything else we need to know about you? (laughs) (laughs) Do you sculpt? Well, you know, I was, I, I, it was funny. I remember thinking about my childhood 
one day on the train into work and thinking about all like the flute lessons, the singing, the karate, the swim team. Uh, and I remember thinking, were they trying to raise Batman? And then I looked down <laughs> and I was wearing a Batman t-shirt. <laughs> yes, indeed they were. And then I thought, oh, so that's why you like him. So, uh, so yeah. So I, I sat down and I wrote a whole short story. Just boom, my first one. And by the time he arrived, it was, it was done. And I sent it off to the, to the course to submit. He took the typewriter and brought it back and I got into the course and he didn't, it's sort of, we've never spoken since <laughs> that was the end. Of I'm a little haunted by that actually, <laughs> but it was well, like, I took all of the luck out of the typewriter or something before I gave it to him. But well, it was your typewriter. It was my typewriter. In fairness. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone deserved that luck, it was you. <laughs> True. Um, so that got me into the class and then, and then, you know, she, Phyllis Rose was incredibly encouraging to me and, and then sent me on to Kit Reed, who was likewise incredibly encouraging. And I spent the next summer at the Bennington Summer Writers Conference, which was a thing that existed before their current MFA programs situation. And that was, that was where, I know I was, I was pretty excited by everything that I was doing, but that was where I thought, okay, this could really be cool. You know, I, I was standing in line for the keg behind Joy Williams <laughs> I was I was watching Joyce Carol Oates write during uh, during a reading, like she had gotten some idea that couldn't even wait to leave the reading. She was just like, so that that's how she publishes two <laughs> novels a year. She writes while reading. Well, you know, it's funny. I was I was a little scandalized because I was young and, and naive, but I, I went back to Kit Reed who who said, oh, that's a that's an old that's a really good exercise actually. And I, I said, what do you what do you mean? And she said. Well, the act of, of listening to a reading is so passive that as you listen, like ideas may push up in a sort of rebellion against what's happening. So you should always have a notebook just in case. And I actually have found that to be an interesting exercise, especially if you're stuck to go to someone else's reading. It yeah. seems kind of like a shitty thing to do, but... Well, I mean, as long as they don't see you writing. As long as they don't, like, sit in the back. <laughs> don't be a distraction. Yeah, no. I, I mean, I, I think that just, like, I found that, like, uh, reading or listening, not that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't mean to sound self-serving, but, like, reading an interview with an author, listening to an interview with an author, or just reading in general, you know, if you're having troubles with uh, with output, try some input. Makes It seems like a basic logic. Yeah. So, you know, the... That summer was a catalyst of a kind, and I, Mary Robeson in particular was the teacher who I think got through to me the most of the writers who were there that summer, and she she helped me see, you know, what I actually had to offer, and I, which I was, was, well, I was trying to write stories about gay people and gay men in particular, and she was really positive about it which in retrospect I mean, it's sad to me I suppose that it was so intense but I was having you know a, a kind of I was having this sort of sense that I 
I was I wasn't sure what I was doing, and she was the one who said, "I feel like no one's really writing about these people the way you're writing about them." She clarified it for she you. She clarified that. So, so that was a really profound moment for me. And and how how long? Like when did you come out? Oh, I had come out. I had come out my. <laughs> I come out my. I come out to myself in high school. I come out in college. I I arrived in college as a freshman, and I weighed. 215 pounds at the beginning of that year and by the, I joined the crew team I lost 30 pounds and told people I was bisexual and then I lost 30 more and t- told them I was gay <laughs> 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 and then the year was out like it was, so basically end of freshman year beginning of sophomore year was when I okay but so when you're writing I guess like, we, like we, it was a couple of years later it wasn't like was you were it this. wasn't like you were grappling with no, anything like no. that in the writing and the writing was the private place where you did it you were already out and exactly okay so like one of the one of the worst things that i ever did to my mom in some ways was in high school that i had been in a gifted and talented program and for the the project was for for uh for drama so we were writing plays and i wrote I wrote about something that happened to me over the summer of my my uh, junior year to senior year when I went off to Georgetown University's summer session for high school juniors. And I had, a, I had an openly gay roommate, and he had a boyfriend that summer, this really hot guy named Franco who... Franco. I think Franco. I'm attracted to him. <laughs> Who is this guy? He was he was really funny because he was he was so adorable and a, a little short and we would go out to bars and inevitably this cluster of men would form around him like everyone and we'd have to they'd be buying him drinks and getting him drunk and we'd have to <laughs> Franco jaws of life him out of there. Yeah, like, <laughs> um so it, Franco was the one that summer who confronted me about being gay. Where he it was, it was I call it the gay John Hughes movie that he never wrote that I should probably write, I guess. Yeah. But basically, he, you know, he said, "I have something really important to tell you. Let's go to the stairs. The stairs were where we, the dorm stairs were where we had all our important conversations that summer. Okay. Which was ridiculous because anyone could listen and if they were just standing in the <laughs> stair above. Well, stair you want an audience. Yeah, I mean, exactly. We're not having these conversations for nothing. So we go off there and he says, I, I, I think you're gay. And I remember being so, I was a little bit like that Ruth, Dr. Ruth moment, really. So... In the, hindsight, I, I think in hindsight, it, Franco should have told you that you were a writer, and Doctor Ruth should have been like, "You are gay." <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so, but whatever. Um, the yeah, so it, I, what my answer was pretty spontaneous, if also a total lie, where you know I said, "Well, I think I'd be the first to know," and and actually, when you're gay, you're often the last to know. Like everybody else figures it out about you <laughs> right. beforehand. But in any case, the that was what I wrote the play about that fall, my senior year in high school. And the teacher liked it so much that 
she submitted it to the state gifted and talented program and it became one of three plays that were chosen from across the state to be read at portland stage company which is a huge honor and like my whole class went in to see this play which is effectively my coming out to them and i didn't tell my mom that it was happening because i didn't want her to know <laughs> i was gonna say she didn't sit down and, and hear this for the first time then no nope okay so it's and that, that's the thing about the closet is such a strange thing and it has so many layers to it and you know it's interesting now to see people grow up pretty much without it you know yeah it's it's not everyone's situation now but it, it's increasingly a situation i remember having to defend being closeted in high school to some high school students when I spoke to a gay straight alliance like five, six years ago and they, they could not understand it. Hmm. They, they really thought it was so strange that he didn't come out in high school. Well, but you talked about everybody else knowing and then, you know, the gay person often being the last to know. I think that that sort of dynamic extends beyond just that particular situation. Like I think human beings can often be blind to something about themselves that everyone close to them can see. You know, and I, I, I'm sometimes haunted by that. Like, is there something about me that people can all see, but they're scared to tell me, you know, or they, they're not comfortable broaching with me, you know, like some weakness or some habit of thought or behavior that I have that they think might be holding me back. But you know what I'm saying? Like just, sure, like I think that. that's the underlying structure of all literary fiction, right? Is what the drama of seeing whether people will find out who they really are, whether they're actually the people they think they are, or whether they're the people they fear they are, or even if they find out who they actually are. Do you know who you actually are? <laughs> I don't, apparently. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> um, so, okay. So you go to Iowa Writers Workshop. Yes. That was... Uh, that. So I... After I left Wesley and I, I worked out in the quote-unquote real world. I don't really like saying it that way, but that's how I used to say it. You know, writing is the real world. But in any case, I I moved to San Francisco. I worked as a bookseller by day and an AIDS activist. And what an AIDS activist? Yes. Okay. I was in ACT UP and also a group called Queer Nation out in San Francisco at the time. And so we were doing a lot of direct action politics, uh, trying to change policies around. Uh, the testing of AIDS drugs, the the ways in which people thought of people with AIDS, the teaching of safe sex. What, the, when, what year was this? This was uh, 1989 to 91. Oh, wow. So the documentary AIDS. that was on, was it on Netflix yeah. or HBO? What was it called? About this, the drugs. Oh, uh, about the drugs? It was about the people who were, activate, you know, who were activists trying to get access. I think this to, is David Francis' documentary. I think I, yeah. it was super powerful. And I'm, yeah. I feel bad. I'm not, not remembering the name. I can... I'll surreptitiously Google it. Yeah. But I mean, anyway, <laughs> that period of time and that particular history, uh, I'm sad to say was not a hundred percent clear to me. Uh, despite the fact that I, I took a course on AIDS in my freshman year of college. And I, I guess I knew a little bit more than the most, but like the, the struggle just to get access to medicine and the red tape that had to be cut through, uh, that was, that was incredible. You know, what people had to do simply to get, and, and I guess the, uh, the Matthew McConaughey movie too was sort of about the same 
sort of thing, the Dallas Buyers Club. How to survive a plague. How to survive a plague. Yes. Super powerful. And yeah. like, you know, crushingly sad too, because a lot of these people who were on the front lines of that fight didn't make it. They, you right. know, they died before the, the battle was won, essentially. They did. And I think, you know, I, I've written about that some. I wrote about that in an essay I wrote for an anthology that Edmund White edited back in 1999 called uh, Loss Within Loss, where he asked all of us to write about artists or writers who had died before these drugs had become available and to try to try to take the measure of what the epidemic had really cost us in terms of the arts and writing. And that was one of the hardest essays I ever wrote. I wrote about a painter I had known who, uh, who had died of AIDS just before the drugs became available. And, you know, if he'd held out even a few months longer, he might've, he might've lived. Ugh. And, at the time that history was hard to hard to make available to people in some ways we were we were trying to become part of the historical record through these actions we were doing so that people would pay attention to us and what we were trying to to talk about and so to the extent that it isn't still talked about is also a marker of how successful we were with it you know i remember becoming really skeptical about everything from you know the police to the the news to the structure of the country the whole it was a real education in the place i really lived in it was profoundly meaning america yeah right it was you know you you go with some friends to an amusement park and two of them are drag queens and they don't want to let you in because two of them are drag queens and and then while they won't let you in and you're sort of protesting that they won't let you in all the tourists want to take pictures with the drag queens <laughs> we're a hit with the people but because one of your friends has a shaved head right the police scanner when they when they call the police says that it's skinheads who oh my god are at the front gate of the amusement park which amusement park it was something like USA something or other. Great. Uh, Six Flags. Six Flags. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, it was, it was just kind of this, I just, I remember just watching the tourists that day with the drag queens and I just wanted to say to the operators like, you guys should get drag queens. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> people might like, really popular. Yeah, I was, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> We're a hit with the people. Your <laughs> shitty park would have better attendance. You guys would uh, dress it up a little bit. Wow. Okay. So, but that, I mean, that's a formative experience politically for you that time in San Francisco, because I know. Yeah, it was. Like having known you, having followed you on social media, like you have a very astute political awareness. Um, Thank you. That was where it happened. That was, that was my education, my, or the found, the beginning of my education. You know, it's, you have to keep educating yourself your whole life. It's not something that's done, but. That was that was a sensibility was formed there for sure. And in terms of gay rights, in terms of um, you know all of all that that encompasses, like the progress that has been made over the past twenty to thirty years, uh, how do you feel about it? Did you expect it to be like this? Oh, I I never I never expected it. 
it's I I had hopes certainly I certainly committed to those hopes you know I I remember working on Out Magazine during the startup and we were essentially presenting to advertisers a package of how attractive uh, LGBT customers were to to them essentially and you know I would I would joke about it as being the the strategy of like don't kill us we'll shop (laughs) 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 we're really good at shopping don't kill us (laughs) Um, uh, but that's actually sort of the that was the MO like we'll be good capitalists just let us live Um, and and it was it was sort of disgusting and also it's sad that it worked to to a large extent you know like I mean the magazine is still around it's like many public it's gone through many identities and but I think there's a larger sense of who we are as people available now through all these different modes well I was going to say you know like social justice is never it's not linear doesn't follow a linear path and like sometimes you make weird trades along the way to get to the point where these things that were once peripheral or peripheral peripheral and uh I don't know, off limits in terms of the public discourse inch their way closer to the mainstream because of a magazine like out, which, you know, is able to exist because advertisers realize that you can shop. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. Like you make weird trades along the way. Yeah. It's not ever a completely clean process or it's hard to understand how deadly it was at the time, how many attacks there were on LGBT people in San Francisco or just, you mean nationally? in San Francisco in New York nationally, you know, the, the AIDS crisis had, had brought it had sort of, I think given people, you know, by the, by the way in which it was sort of tied as a punishment on gays. Uh, the idea was with a lot of homophobes was just kind of like, well, then let's just get rid of them all, you know? And, that led to a lot of violence. Well, and, and it's like the thing is, is that there was a lot of uh, homophobia and awful behavior that was really overt in terms of that sort of, you know, language and uh, belief system. But it was also um, passive. There was also really passive aggression towards uh, the gay community when it came to the AIDS crisis because, you know, politically it was just like they might not have been um, shouting epithets into a microphone, but they would just sit on their hands and not do anything. There was a piece recently that ran was something like 15 times that Reagan laughed at the AIDS crisis, something really horrible where it just was like a listicle of how, of all of Reagan's shitty moments on air about and in public about the AIDS crisis. It's a significant mark of shame on his record. Yeah. So uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you a little bit about Iowa. I mean, I've, I've had talked to a lot of writers uh, on this program who went to the workshop. I've heard various things. Um, curious to know what your uh, experience of it was. For me, it was something I applied to with a great deal of cynicism because I sort of believed all of the myths about the place in the way that most people do when they, when they don't know a place. So I believe that it would, you know, try to machine the originality out of me. I believed that 
everyone there was the same kind of writer. Just like lots of dumb, wrong things I believed about it. And, <laughs> you know, and, I, and I, I've written about this in an essay called My Parade that starts with me saying, you know, my curse is that I now have to field all of those myths and all that cynicism from other people for the rest of <laughs> for the rest of my you should have by the existence. way you, you should be close to having a really good collection of essays done because you have written a lot of good ones well thank you I actually am working on a collection of essays oh I was going to say because so. that essay that essay that you wrote about uh, when you worked in catering and you were uh, at yes. w- William Buckley's right wonderful you know uh, super super thank interesting you. thanks I, I think the collection is going to be called either Visitor or How to Write an Autobiographical Novel or called like no I actually am from Maine <laughs> by Alexander Chi I'm from Maine bitches <laughs> uh, I I think you know thank you the so the yeah I, for me it was kind of a the fairy tale where the thing that you try to get somewhat cynically suddenly takes you in and uh, and then suddenly you're in love with it and it's so it was a kind of it's a lot of eating crow really happily you know happy to be wrong happy to be you know studying with deborah eisenberg and dennis johnson and marilyn robinson and james allen mcpherson just to name a few you know to go to readings where i could hang out with margaret atwood afterward or uh James Merrill. You've had some incredible mentors or had like exposure to some incredible I have, writers. I've had some really incredible writing teachers. It's true. And I, I know that I, I'm, I'm lucky in that respect. And I could probably do a, I could probably do a book that was just, you know, a series of memoirs just about them, uh, which I, I have also thought about, but anyway, it's, well, and you have the collection of essays in the works, and you have another novel in the works. Right. Those, are, right. The, those are the two. I think so. You think so? <laughs> well, you know, I have ideas for other novels, too. But, it, again, it's the question of what's the most urgent and what... You're like, dude, I just published a 550-page <laughs> novel that took me 15 years to write. Can you just let me have my moment in the sun? Actually, I really want to publish another book really quickly. Because yeah. I, I just want to take the curse out of it. Yeah. Well, I think you will. I really do. And you know, like different books, different works of art have different gestation processes. You know, I mean, this one needed a, a needed some time in the oven. Maybe the next one won't. But uh, I don't think you can force it too much. I mean, maybe you can a little bit, but I think too much of that, and uh, you can start to to muck up the works. The poet Jory Graham, who was at Iowa when I was there, she used to say to her students that there are poems that took a very long time, and they it was like they created a channel in you and then and then it meant that there was other work that would sometimes arrive very quickly very suddenly and so I'm hoping that that's true well I wish you luck with it I congratulate you and uh, I look forward to whatever's next thank you so much okay folks there you go Alexander Chi and uh, his new novel is called The Queen of the Night available from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt you can find Alex online at thequeenofthenight.com. I think it's the queen of the night. It's either the queen of the night or queenofthenight.com. I think it's the queen of the night.com. Just to be tedious about it. You can Google him too. Alexander Chi. He's also on Twitter where his handle is at Alexander Chi. 
Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the theme song music of this program and the band Stereo Total. The transitional music today provided by Curtis Mayfield. R.I.P. Thank you. Off of the Superfly album. A timeless classic. Uh, This podcast has its own app. Did you know that? The Other People Podcast has its own official app. The app is free. Get the app. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. If you don't have the app, you're missing something. Get the app. Download the app. Get it on your device. You have the app on, for instance, your phone. And uh, when that happens, the most recent episode automatically uploads to the app. You don't have to do anything. The latest episode just magically appears there. You can favorite your favorite episodes. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. And then if you want to, you can sign up for premium. That gets you access to everything for as little as 75 cents a month. So here's how it works. You get the most recent 50 episodes of the program for free. The most recent 50 for free, always. Right there on the app waiting for you, free. And then if you want access to the other 350-some-odd episodes, you just sign up for premium, 75 cents a month. Support the program. Imagine me dancing to this song. Is that troubling? Uh, Yeah, 400 episodes. In the can. What is this? What is this that I've done? I think, you know, to be honest, a lot of the times uh, I'm talking to you guys, and I don't mean this in any way to diminish my communication with my listeners, but I think I am talking to my kids. I like the idea of having these available to them. Especially, like, a long time from now, after I'm gone. Or even grandkids. What, what does this reveal about me? I will concede that that question does haunt me from time to time. Because there's really no way of hiding when you do 400 episodes of a show and you record yourself in conversation and doing monologues 400 times. Eventually the real you or the essence of the real you or some version that's very close to the real you emerges and there's no hiding. All of your faults. Everything. The mess that is me is available in the, in this body of work somehow. I'm sorry. Please remember that Lavoisier was guillotined in the reign of terror and that Wagner insisted that Christ wasn't a Jew. That's it for now. Uh, thank you once again to Alexander Chi. Thanks to Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Sign up for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club if you get a chance. Huge thanks, as always, and with greater emphasis today on episode 400 to you guys for listening and for supporting the show. Curtis Mayfield. Might seem odd that a normcore... Caucasian dad from the Midwest would be this into Curtis Mayfield, but I truly am a huge Curtis Mayfield fan. 400 episodes. It's weird. (laughs) 